Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. In today's episode, what the election will mean for the UK. man is going to be the Prime Minister of uh, the UK now, Boris Johnson. Good man. He's tough and he's smart. Uh, they're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump and people are saying that that's a good thing. That they like me over there. That's Donald Trump putting his support behind Boris Johnson as he was close to becoming Prime Minister. It was the start of what became perhaps the US president's closest relationship with a foreign leader. And the Tory government charm offensive appeared to be working when Trump suggested he was willing to give Johnson his biggest post-Brexit prize. I think we'll make a fantastic and big trade deal with the UK. Actually, we should do much more business than we're doing with the UK. But has the UK made a miscalculation? With the pandemic changing everything, Joe Biden has a strong lead in the polls and, unlike Trump, doesn't think Brexit is a very good idea at all. He's also warned the coveted trade agreement is at risk if an Irish hard border returns and seems to be of a similar mind to Barack Obama, who he served as vice president. The United States wants a strong United Kingdom as a partner. And the United Kingdom is at its best when it's helping to lead a strong Europe. It leverages UK power. So will EU members, France and Germany, be more attractive overseas partners to a Biden administration? Or will another Trump win breathe life into the special relationship and empower the politics that has underpinned Brexit? Hello, my name's Graham Demnick from HuffPost UK team and joining me today are two top political journalists. I've got uh, Kieran Stacey, who's political correspondent for the Financial Times, who's based in Washington, D.C. Hello, Kieran. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Graham. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. And Rachel Wearmouth, who's a political correspondent for HuffPost UK team, and she's based in Westminster. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing? Hi, Graham. How's it going? I'm sat in a rainy North London. Um, yeah, I'm OK. How are ah. you? <laughs> uh, yeah. How I miss home. It sounds <laughs> as glamorous as ever. Um, so for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America, and at HuffPost UK, we wanted to try and produce something that made sense of the US election for people back home. Uh, This time around, we wanted to talk about what the election result, a Trump win or a Biden win, will actually mean for the UK, if it means anything at all. So I guess we're in um, special relationship territory, the phrase first coined by Churchill and seemed to enjoy a renaissance under Blair and Bush, the Yo Blair, what are you doing line at the G8 in 2006 still tickles me immensely. Um, So guys, what do we, where do we think that the special relationship is right now? Um, 
how has it been under 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 Trump? Uh, May and Johnson both seem to try and woo Trump more than other countries. Um, has has that worked? And how is the relationship going? Kieran, do you want to have a go at that one? Yeah, well, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson were quite early trying to get to Trump, and I think Theresa May had a fairly significant success at first, uh, being one of the first world leaders to get a bilateral summit with him. Yeah. Um, but that's that was the, the, the pinnacle of it, really, for Theresa May. It was all downhill from there. So really what we saw after that was an absolutely terrible relationship between those two people. And we're only really now finding out the extent of how bad it was. But you've got a lot of uh, diplomats and former diplomats saying now, coming out now and saying, well, on the calls, for example, Donald Trump just used to talk over her, used right. to openly show her contempt... Um, she would struggle to get her points across. Um, obviously, with Boris Johnson, it's been much warmer. Um, Trump calls Boris Johnson Britain Trump, uh, literally his words. Um, and so he obviously sees himself uh, in, in Boris. But um, whether that's actually added up to anything concrete for the UK, I actually don't think it has. Um, I, I don't think it's been of much benefit to Boris, to be honest. Yeah, Rachel, how do you, how do you see the relationship under under the, the Trump years for the UK? Um, I, would, I, would, I would agree with everything that Kieran said about um, the years under Theresa May. I think it's kind of did become very fractious and quite obvious at times that he was actively, actively trying to undermine her. Um, and I think that it, under sort of Boris Johnson, we've seen a lot of kind of warm words from, from the president, but yeah, they haven't really added up to anything significant for us. I mean, in if you actually look at what's happened during that time, we're sort of trying desperately to to get a US-UK trade deal done. Right. And um, he's put a 25% tariff on Scottish whiskey, which, right, right. <laughs> which um, is kind of really pressing on Boris Johnson's sore points from a political point of view. You know, it's the biggest problem he has in terms of opposition um, in during this time might be the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. And he's, he's kind of not exactly helping um, Boris Johnson in that way, yeah. So the, yeah, the big prize of the last four years has been this this kind of bumper trade deal that 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 we were that Trump has promised the UK, um, but it, that always seemed in conflict with America first. When you hear that sound, we're pausing the chat to explain something in a little bit more detail. There was always something that didn't sit comfortably with Trump's apparent support for Brexit and his own America first strategy. Why would someone who has spent their life portraying themselves as a deal maker offer the UK more favourable terms than they already enjoy? Particularly when the UK is desperate to sign something, anything, with the world's superpower. That's before you consider America first which has seen Trump withdraw from global politics, such as leaving the Paris Agreement on climate change and adopt a more protectionist stance on trade. That's seen him slap huge tariffs on billions of dollars worth of goods from the EU, Canada, Mexico and China in an effort to make US goods more attractive to domestic customers. So far, so technical. Let's talk about chlorinated chicken. This is the idea that a trade deal too generous to the US could see products lining supermarket shelves that are lower in quality than the UK is used to. Chlorine washed chicken and hormone pumped beef are two that most come up. But also, and you might want to cover your ears, insect filled chocolates 
rat infested noodles and orange juice containing maggots. That's if the Wilder reports can be believed. No deal has been signed yet, so none of this is certain to happen. And everything could change if Trump loses in November. But a fantastic and big trade deal? Well, as they say on TV news when trying to bail out of a difficult section, I guess only time will tell. I wasn't quite sure whether, you know, whether the UK was going to be sold a, a bill of goods, which I think is a, is, is, is a US phrase. Uh, Kieran, what do you think of the, the, the prospects of, of, of getting a, a, this, this wonderful trade deal that, that Trump, a big, uh, whatever kind of superlative Trump would you need to describe the <laughs> trade deal? Um, is, is that actually going to happen or is this, or is this just kind of Trump's hyperbole that, 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 that the UK government is happy to swallow? I don't, I don't think it's impossible. And I don't think the real barrier to it is Trump and America first. What we've seen throughout the first term of Trump's administration is a willingness to sacrifice pretty much anything, depending on what his priority of the day is. So classic on this is the China policy, where we've seen one day the US will be hitting China hard in terms of sanctions, uh, both trade sanctions on, on Chinese tech companies. The next day, Donald Trump will be saying, oh, well, we'll scrap all of that in order to get a trade deal. So I think Britain's made the correct calculation that actually Trump loves doing deals. And if you can just get one over the line, then he actually doesn't really tend to care too much about the detail. He likes having a piece of paper to sign. There is a deal to be done there. Um, part of the problem right now is... Um, the UK doesn't obviously have the time before the election in three weeks' time to get anything done. They were hoping earlier in the summer that they might just be able to do a kind of phase one deal, which is something that Trump loves to do, by the way. So although they're talking about some big knockout catch-all trade deal, what diplomats over here were talking about was something much smaller, something more scaled back, just to get the momentum started get Trump signed up to something and then hopefully the process takes over. Um, that's obviously looking a bit more precarious here. But if Trump does get re-elected, I, I think that is going to be uh, the strategy. Try and just get something small together, maybe that avoids the key tension points of, say, chlorinated chicken or access to the NHS. Um, and then, you know, get the momentum building from there. What we don't know is what Biden's approach to that is going to be. And, um, you know, that's definitely something they're trying to flesh out right now. Right. Uh, Rachel, has America become more important to the UK government, do you think, since, since, since Brexit? I mean, getting this deal has been its, its kind of top priority to prove it can be this, completely forget the phrase now, but, it, <laughs> but it's kind of go, going global or something, something yeah. similar. Was global it, Britain. Was yeah. Global Britain, that's it, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think sort of when you look at what a US-UK trade deal could actually add to the economy, it's something like only like 0.5%. You know, it's kind of not, not massive in terms of how it could benefit the UK economy. But in, from a sort of symbolic point of view, as in like, you know, this buccaneering Britain going out into the world and striking its own trade deals, is sort of, it's, a, it's a big deal from that perspective. But I think um, a lot of what Kieran was about to mention there, I think, was some, some of the like, big flashpoints in terms of just how difficult it will be to do a deal, which is not really so much to do with either whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden. It's to do with, you know, you know, American agriculture is not going to change to to strike a trade deal with the UK. And, and there are other, lots of other points on which we're, we're going to disagree as well. I think sort of if you looked at, for example, tariffs on cars or if you looked at, you know, we want to actually tax some of the big sort of digital giants such as Amazon, Facebook, you know, the, and 
these are things that are going to be very difficult just for American industry to accept, regardless of who's in, you know, the Oval Office. Yeah, sure. And what does I mean, I'm interested can kind of all say what what a Trump win would mean for, for 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 the narrative and the kind of discussions we have about um, populism um, sweeping sweeping the West apparently. Yeah, and I guess you would say that um, sort of Boris Johnson's victory was sort of the crowning of, of populism in the in the UK. You know, it came off the back of Brexit, this huge victory for get Brexit done for get this sort of radical right agenda going you know it's kind of but I think it would be a mis- mistake to say that they're exactly the same and that it that it follow that one follows the other um I don't know it's kind of it's very hard to predict what's going to happen from here on in I think it just in terms of nobody saw coronavirus coming um and we don't know whether this Brexit deal is going to be signed by the end of the year or if it's going to be the type of Brexit that it was before we went into the election, you know, whether it's going to be this Australian style deal or if we're actually going to end up much closer to the EU and it will turn out a great deal hasn't changed. Just I'll, I'll give you one pre- prediction, Graham. Uh, whatever happens in November's election, people will either absolutely with certainty declare that this is now the undefeatable age of populism or the end of populism. Right, 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 right. <laughs> People right. always read too much into election results. I mean, I remember when Macron got elected president of France, people were like, oh, this is it. This is the end of populism. See, yeah, we've yeah. defeated it. Now Centrism's centrism back. is back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so look, w- whatever happens and the polls obviously suggest right now it's going to be a fairly um, significant Biden win. If it is a significant Biden win, everybody will say that's it. That's the end of populism. Let's for a second talk political theory. No, please don't run away. We keep hearing the word populism, but what does it actually mean? It's used with such abandon that it almost doesn't mean anything at all. Donald Trump is a populist, and Brexit was a populist uprising too, apparently. Boris Johnson is a populist, and so is the far right in France. But so too is Jeremy Corbyn. They can't all be populists, can they? Well, yes and no. But mainly no. Few agree, but most definitions of populism include something about representing the people who are good against the elite who are bad. You can see it in Trump promising to drain the swamp and Corbyn offering a government for the many, not the few. But where they diverge and why populism is seen as a bad thing is the populists lack of respect for political norms and posing a threat to democracy. Trump is refusing to say whether he will accept the result of the election. That's a classic populist move. Corbyn was grumpy about losing the election, for sure, but he didn't threaten to upend the result and he shuffled off to the backbenches again. Completely forgetting that, you know, somewhere between 35 and 50 percent of the American population would have voted for Trump. Um, and, and that is quite serious because Trump is so far divorced from what you would consider mainstream or what has historically been mainstream American views and values that you've still got a huge rift there in American society. Um, there was a very good essay actually in The Atlantic this weekend by David Brooks saying that um, this is this is a, a, a real moment um, in history and Americans have catastrophically lost trust not just in the institutions that govern them, but in each other as well. And there was some very good polling evidence to show how riven American society is right now. So 
Just one thing that I'd say to anybody listening to this is even if Biden wins, this is not the return of centrism. There is a huge divide in American politics. Uh, Trump supporters will be very pumped up um, if, if their candidate loses, especially if it's close. Uh, and that will continue to be a theme for, for several years. And yeah, so that nicely moves us on to, to Biden. He is, he is um, ahead quite comfortably in the polls as we speak. He's, his lead has been pretty strong since since you became the, the, the Democratic candidate. And so do we think in that case that a Biden win would be tricky for the UK, given given its willingness to cozy up to Trump and, and, and try and get this trade deal? And Rachel, what do you what do you think uh, uh, the difficulties are of a Biden win? What do they present to the UK? And down the street reads the polls as, as, as well as we do. They must be looking towards the US and thinking, hmm, Biden, Biden could be the man. Is that is their gaze changing now, do you think? Um, there's a lot of been a lot of reports in the last few days, which would suggest right. that's very much the case. Yeah. Um, I think there's been senior conservatives kind of briefing that they're very much switching their, their focus now to the Biden team and trying to build bridges there. And, and but one of the big problems as kind of I would see it at the moment is We've just finished um, pushing through this internal markets bill, which kind right. of rips up a lot of the um, withdrawal agreement in terms of Northern Ireland. So it, the withdrawal agreement was designed to protect um, Northern Ireland from a, from a hard border with the South by by signing up to certain EU rules. And um, the in, the internal market bill has sort of just riven road roughshod over that and um that is a big problem for the democrats because you know it was bill clinton's crowning achievement the good friday agreement good friday agreement you've got um joe biden's got you know irish roots his family has irish roots so this is kind of going to be a big issue i think and you know the democrats have never really liked brexit right right yeah no biden biden himself said uh had i been a member of parliament had I been a British citizen, I would have voted against leaving. US interests are diminished with Great Britain not being an integral part of Europe. Kieran, does Biden's Irish American roots, his opposition to Brexit, does that does that pose a, a problem for the UK? Well, actually, I don't think Biden's Irish American roots really change um, the reality of this, which is that there are enough members of Congress with Irish roots, um, that they have threatened several times to kill any trade deal which threatens to undermine the Good Friday Agreement. One of the interesting things in in American politics is just how many very senior people here claim ancestry back to Ireland and feel that very, very intensely. Um, And so Irish politics filters through in a way that I've, I've been amazed at since I moved here a couple of years ago. So I don't think actually, you know, Joe Biden being in the White House almost is irrelevant if Nancy Pelosi is already standing up threatening to scupper any trade bill in the House of Representatives because she's got 20-odd um, Irish-American members of Congress at her back saying, do not whatever you do threaten the Good Friday Agreement. That's just a reality of American politics, whoever's the president. And I think a lot of um, British listeners probably won't realise that American trade deals have to go to the representatives, right? They have to, has to get past people like Nancy Pelosi for it to become a reality at all. Yeah, Congress has, has huge power here. It's not like the UK where the, the Prime Minister just decides what foreign policy is. Right, right. And the UK government would say that Biden, Pelosi, et al. have, have misinterpreted what they're doing. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that a reasonable position from them, do you think? I, 
I think there has been um, relatively little focus paid to uh, the internal markets bill over yeah. here in the US in the middle of an election campaign, <laughs> if I'm being honest. People will be surprised. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I think there is a broader question about uh, misinterpreting both Boris Johnson and misinterpreting Brexit. And that is definitely true. And that is something that I know Downing Street is worried about right now is that because Boris has managed to get himself billed as some kind of version of Trump over in the UK, um, which I think was always a strategic error for multiple reasons. Um, But because of that, they're now desperately trying to backpedal. Um, They've also just uh, appointed as ambassador here, Dame Karen Pierce, who's a uh, you know, very credible diplomat, uh, used to run the um, UK's mission to the UN, but was also appointed with half an eye on the fact that she got on with Donald Trump. Um, and I think now she and her team are kind of trying to make those contacts uh, with the Biden team as well. And and this is the problem, really, when you go in hard for one candidate or the other, you know, suddenly you have to, to start tracking back. But definitely in the here in the US, as you'll know, Graham, there, there is a very easy narrative of Brexit and Boris are just a version of Trump. And, and that is not really true. Um, Brexit happened for a lot of very different reasons. And Boris Johnson is a professional politician in the way that Donald Trump is not. Um, and actually, the two of them, even now, you're seeing the way that they're handling coronavirus and their own um, bouts of coronavirus. It's completely different. Um, and that kind of tells you something about the different characters they are. But I think in Downing Street now, they're desperately trying to demonstrate that. And I wouldn't be surprised if you if you see Boris acting very quickly after a Biden win to try and get in there because um, they're desperate not to be billed as, as just another version of Trump. Yeah, how, Rachel, how, how are Downing Street kind of balancing this? Boris doesn't seem to be sticking his nose in in any, in any way to the US election, which is um, the opposite to what Trump did in December when he phoned LBC Radio. Right, got yeah. Donald, Donald from Washington on the, on the line. Um, to, to back um, to back Boris, how, how is Downing Street doing this this kind of balancing act? Do you think? Um, well, I don't know if it's so much that they're trying a balancing act at the moment as just as just panicking and looking at the reality of the polls, thinking Joe Biden's likely to win. You know, um, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden haven't really had the best relationship in the past because of several things that Boris has said about Barack Obama, um, and. I think they're kind of just panicking, trying to speak to as many diplomats and people connected in Washington to um, Joe Biden. But it's worth kind of saying that it's not necessarily going to be Boris who's in number 10 in the years to come. You know, there's already a lot of briefing um, about how, how how good the prime minister's health is, um, whether he's really up for being prime minister once the coronavirus crisis is dealt with. You know, a lot of Conservatives' attention is actually starting to focus now on on Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. So it's not necessarily going to be Boris Johnson who needs to forge a relationship with Joe Biden. It'll be a really interesting test. I I always find these relationships interesting because it'll be a really clear demonstration of how much depends on the personal relationship of the two leaders involved. And I'm always a bit of a sceptic on this. I think that it, you know, most of the, all of these bilateral relationships happen on at official level, um, you know, quite pragmatically people can come together and just figure out the issues and then okay if you need to get the two leaders in a room what do they sign up to um most of that has been agreed in advance and the uk and the us now the so-called special relationship really i don't think is is to do with all of that um interpersonal stuff the cultural connections 
Um, I think one reason that the US really values the UK relationship um, is the intelligence sharing. Um, so I remember I reported a lot, have reported a lot over the last couple of years on the um, scrap over whether to use Huawei or not. And one of the big things uh, that Americans were talking about is, well, we can't cut off the UK completely because we're really, really dependent on their intelligence sharing. You know, the UK is not despite what some people think, a, a, a completely minor, irrelevant power floating off somewhere in the mid-Atlantic. It is more in, important uh, than that globally and to the US. But the reality is that outside the EU, uh, the UK's importance to Washington is diminished. And we already saw under Barack Obama him starting to switch from using London as his primary route into the EU to Berlin. And I imagine that will continue to be the case uh, under a Biden presidency as well. Um, I should think that uh, whoever is in power in Germany will be a more important relationship for him than Boris Johnson, whoever is the British Prime Minister. We'll come back to Kieran and Rachel later, but I've also spoken to Alex Kaufman, who's a senior reporter at HuffPost, and he covers climate and energy policy. We've been talking about Trump's impact on the UK, but we also wanted to look at Trump's impact on the planet and what another four years would mean. So this election campaign has been notable for its lack of policy discussion on anything, and that's perhaps been most notable when it comes to climate and the environment. So, Alex, how bad has Trump's stewardship of the environment been over the last four years? I think people in the UK will be aware of the US pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, that's bad. <laughs> but what, what, else, what else has he been up to in the last four years in terms of climate and environment policies? Well, there, there's actually a stark figure that came out of a study released just uh, two days ago. Uh, that I think does a good job of illustrating what he hasn't been doing. Right. His enforcement of anti-pollution laws dropped really, really dramatically in, in the first two years of his administration compared to uh, the previous two presidents. So right. there was a 70% decrease in criminal prosecutions under the Clean Water Act. Right. Uh, and there was more than 50% decrease in prosecutions under the Clean Air Act. And that's from a University of Michigan Law School study that, that came out this week. So that's pretty dramatic. You know, the, the things that I think are, are, are more well-known and, and equally concerning have been the wanton rollback of almost every major regulation that was enacted to limit greenhouse gas emissions. So, right. you know, in, in just the first couple of years, he replaced the rule that was meant to limit uh, carbon emissions from power plants. Right. He gutted the rule that was meant to uh, limit methane emissions uh, from oil and gas sites. He changed the uh, fuel mileage standards for American cars, thus putting uh, you know, the cars that, that will be on the road five years from now uh, behind most other developed countries. So it has just been a, a real historic assault on these policies in, in just his first couple of years. It's hard to overstate it because there really aren't uh, many other examples of a president doing this much harm in, in such a short period of time. Right. And what, what, what is the significance, do you think, of, of the Paris Climate Agreement and him pulling the US out? I mean, 
he would argue, I'm sure, that, that the US is doing plenty on its own. But why do you think that's important? Well, you know, the, the historic nature of, of the Paris Climate Agreement is that it was the first big accord between all the major polluters in the world uh, agreeing to cut emissions. You know, no, nothing before this had united both the United States, the number two emitter, and China, the number one emitter, in agreement on these things. So, you know, the, the symbolic nature of it was, was what made it particularly historic. It's a non-binding agreement, so there aren't really legal mechanisms to force signatories to make the cuts that they've agreed to. But, you know, if if the the, the world's second largest emitter, the richest country, the military hegemon uh, is is not coming to the table, then it's hard to imagine most of the smaller countries that are within that country's sphere of influence uh, really cooperating fully or feeling like there is the adequate pressure to meet the goals that that they had set out. It is notable that technically he has not yet withdrawn. Right. So the outcome of the election, uh, you know, should it be determined the day of the election, will be quite impactful for the future of, of the U.S.'s participation in that. And I guess we shouldn't really be surprised about Trump's attitude towards the environment. I mean, I mean, what, what's his views on, 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 on climate change? I mean, I think... There are quotes suggesting that he thinks it's a hoax. Some of the more outlandish climate-related quotations associated to him are, it was created by and for China. Um, It's freezing in New York. Where the hell is global warming? Does he actually not believe in man-made climate change, that it's human actions changing the environment? You know, it, it is very difficult to determine the 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 true uh you know thinking and and cognitive workings of of this president perhaps uniquely so yeah uh, among u.s presidents uh you know he also is uniquely um you know bombastic and sarcastic you know and and there's a sort of postmodern uh nature to his public communications whereby you know he stakes out really radical views and intones them with a certain uh you know jocular nature right. that being said the actions that he has taken as as president seem to indicate that he does in fact uh you know believe that there is some type of of conspiracy of scientists going on here and this is the the myth that has been propagated since the 1990s by largely oil and gas and and coal companies that were looking to delay any type of regulation on on fossil fuels so um you know he, he has throughout uh his his administration gone after any of the very modest regulations that existed to limit global warming so that would seem to indicate he's not particularly concerned uh for the future that his his grandchildren and his his younger child will will live through yeah that would seem to indicate that he he does in fact buy the stuff that he seems to promote off the cuff and tweets and Trump's Supreme Court pick, Amy Coney Barrett, seems to share the same scepticism, should we, should we charitably describe it. Um, and in her cross-examination by Kamala Harris this week, um, she wouldn't say whether she thought climate change was real or, or, or man-made. I think we've got a clip of that now. And do you believe that climate change is happening and it's threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink. Um, Senator, 
again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, you have asked me a series of questions like that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious, whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me that is on a very contentious matter of public debate. And I will not do that. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Well, thank, you. thank you, Judge Barrett. And, and you've made your point clear that you believe it's a debatable point. And presumably Biden's approach to, to the environment is very different from Trump. What's he trying to do to, to kind of unravel the, the, the kind of mess that Trump's created? Yeah, I mean, the first step uh, for him will obviously be replacing this cabinet of industry stooges right. with more competent and, and, and public-minded uh, regulators and, and, and officials. But beyond that, he has said that he wants to transition the U.S. to a carbon-free electricity system by 2035, which is a pretty big step. Yeah. He wants to retrofit uh, 4 million homes and buildings with uh, you know, energy efficiency measures and, and electrification. Uh, you know, he wants to build out a pretty massive network of electric car charging stations across the country's highways, uh, which would, would likely, you know, enable a pretty rapid transition there. So, yeah. you know, those, those are really the, the key takeaways. And, you know, he has long campaigned really from the beginning as, as the person who, as a you know the the number two in the Obama administration had helped to broker the Paris Agreement deal, uh, and that he would seek to not only rejoin it but uh, you know reclaim the United States uh, mantle of of leadership there. Uh, whether or not the you know that that is something he he would be able to do obviously is is up in the air. Um, but Biden seems to shy away from this this term the Green New Deal, and that seems to be a something the Republicans have been attacking both Biden and Harris on. Is the Green Deal significantly different to what to what Biden's proposing? And why would he not want to, to get behind it to burnish his environmental credentials? Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a complex game of, of, of politics here. So yeah. I think it's important for us to understand what the Green New Deal is. You know, the Green New Deal is a, a general movement and a policy framework much more so than than a, a specific piece of policy and there is a lot more that needs to be done uh, that that the private sector and the market would be utterly incapable of doing at the speed that is necessary right now and with the sensitivity that that is necessary to how many ordinary people's lives are going to be disrupted by those actions so you know what the green new deal did was essentially offer an anti-austerity framework to addressing climate change where you know these kind of uh Old, old school, uh, you know, ideas of, of government action of, you know, federally led and funded infrastructure um, and, and a certain degree of central planning, you know, things that the United States really hasn't had uh, in the past 50 years, you know, uh, bring, bringing those things back to do large scale decarbonization and, and to try to make it an equitable transition for the people whose lives will be affected by it. So, you know, this movement really has galvanized a lot of people and it has has garnered uh, a lot of political support. You know, I mean, the, the one of the senators who co-authored the 
resolution that essentially laid out the core tenets of what a Green New Deal would be last year, a guy named Ed Markey, who's been around for about four decades in Congress. Right. And, you know, obviously the so-called AOC wing of the party is is really um, organized around this. So, you know, it is a it is a movement and it is a symbol of this kind of progressive approach to climate politics. Now, from the get-go, as you might imagine, the Republican Party has sought to discredit it in any way that it could and has, has had some very favorable and credulous coverage on its right-leaning kind of propaganda networks, the Fox Newses of the world and the conservative yeah. talk radio, where they have smeared it with inaccurate you know, numbers. I mean, there was one number that was thrown around that it would cost $100 trillion. This was is a bogus number that right. was quite literally fabricated by a conservative think tank. I don't know how you many know? zero. I don't know how many zeros there are in a hundred. Sure, yeah, and and you know what? They uh, I don't think anybody has has calculated it like that because it's it's not rooted in any reality here. I mean, the the second thing is is uh you know they they claim that it would lead to uh you know taking away all meat. Uh, that right. no one would be allowed to eat meat anymore. They'll ban hamburgers and, you know, no one will ever fly on an airplane again. And, you know, these are these are obviously hyperbolic, uh, yeah. uh, you know, projections of what conservatives fear a, a sweeping climate policy would ultimately mean for these heavily emitting commodities. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's not real. Nevertheless, you know, that that propaganda network is very powerful. And the Biden campaign is, in fact, proposing something more moderate than the Green New Deal wing of the party is is pushing. But he, in fact, has proposed a, a climate policy that is largely in line with right. those kind of anti-austerity government-led approaches that at this point I think any credible scientist would say is is necessary to to execute on the changes that that need to happen as quickly as they need to happen. Alex, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Okay guys, for the last bit, I just wanted to provide listeners in the UK with a bit of a cheat sheet about um, American politics. Let's give, give, give listeners something that they can use in a pub to impress their friends. So, question one. You're both election night veterans. What's your secret to sustaining yourselves through the wee small hours of the morning? Rachel, what's your, uh, what's your, what's your, what's your go-to to, to keep you on top of your game? Other energy and other energy drinks are available, but uh, sugar-free Red Bull is okay, <laughs> okay. kind of what I go for. That and sausage rolls, and I would say that as someone sausage who's rolls. <laughs> a northerner. So, yeah. okay. Thanks, thanks for grimly gripping on to northern stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that, Kieran. What's your? How do you uh, stay up at night? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I try and stay up the night. This is a bit ridiculous. I try and stay up the night before. I try and reset my body clock and every single time it fails because uh, it, it takes longer than that to reset your body clock. So I just end up exhausted because I've gone to bed at three o'clock the night before and then still woken up at, you know, okay. seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, but uh, no, I, I usually find the adrenaline just about manages to carry me through. Oh, if you're watching in the UK, by the way, I presume the thing to do is to go to sleep and wake up early. I, I, I'm trying to remember how the time zones work. Is it called a disco nap? Is that is that what yeah, it's that described as? Get a couple hours before um, before everything kicks off. So that might be the way forward. Okay, um, more politically based question this time. 
Um, do you, what what would the first thing that the UK will notice about the US if 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 Biden wins? Do you think, Kieran? Do you think anything will change immediately? Um, I think we're all going to calm down a bit, frankly. And and you know maybe this is just me as a journalist, but I'm sure other people do this too. You know, you wake up and you log on to your uh, news website of choice, or you log on to Twitter, and you just are instantly. Uh, confronted with a barrage of of madness, um, depending on what's come from the White House that morning. And I think a lot of that, presumably all of that will then calm down. Um, if Biden does win, it will be on a calm things down ticket, by the way. Right, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the way he's run his campaign. And the other thing you're going to see change very quickly uh, is the response to coronavirus. And, and um, it'd be interesting to know whether if Biden does take a much harder line on lockdowns whether that is able whether he is able to to get a grip on things because we here in the u.s look like we're just on the beginning of what the uk is seeing now and uh, whether there's anything that a politician can do to stop that i don't know rachel do you think things will you looking forward to calmer twitter feeds as a result of <laughs> the biden premiership yeah uh, well i remember writing about um sort of keir starmer's first hundred days as, as labor leader um, and one of one of sort of an insider told me that one of his main aims was to make politics boring again. Right. <laughs> and right. I wonder if that'll be a, if it's a very similar thing with Joe Biden. But I think what a lot of people will be listening out for is um, how America is going to pay for the economic fallout of you know COVID nineteen. Because I think that's you know there'll be a lot of countries that take their cues from that, um, and will be just interested to see how he do how he plans to deal with you know, the economy as well as the disease itself. Yeah, you I mean, we, might, we might see a president in a face mask for a change, which would be good. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a very good point, actually. Just the optics of seeing Biden yeah. adhering to social distancing and being in a face mask will, will really change things and, and might start changing people's behaviour. Um, but also, Rachel mentions the economic side of things. It looks pretty much impossible now that we're going to see a stimulus bill here before the election. Um, if, if there is a Biden presidency, that will happen almost instantly, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we talked a lot about the special relationship. Is it is it ultimately doomed given the the fact the UK's out the out, out of the EU, Paris, Berlin, Brussels seem to be more favourable places to turn your turn your gaze. Is it is are we seeing the end of the special relationship, Rachel? Um, I don't I don't think so. I think it always kind of evolves and changes. But I think um, there's been a lot of hopefully we've spent a lot of these years thinking about the lessons for us as well, you know, and there was a quite a, there was a big backlash when Barack Obama tried to intervene in the Brexit debate. You know, there was, you know, a lot of the Iraq war was very unpopular. Um, and there's got the, I was sort of, whether it's Boris Johnson or our next prime minister has got to find a way of voicing that scepticism as well as forging a relationship, which is a, a, just a very difficult challenge, but um, obviously one they're going to have to tackle. Kieran, special relationship, I think it's already finished. I think it's already okay. over. But, I mean, really, that was that special relationship was so much about the joint war effort. And you're, you've now got a generation of politicians who, who don't remember it. Um, and then maybe two generations on from that. Um, and and that's also why you're seeing uh, in the electorate, you know, a breaking down of the old social order that was really the post put in place in the post-war years. Um, society has moved on from that. Um the UK and the US have a relationship. It is a very good relationship, but it is no more special 
than Germany's relationship or you know, other members of, of the EU or, or possibly even Australia's relationship. But the UK does have things going for it. Obviously, it's got a common language, got very, very close security and intelligence bonds, as I was mentioning before, um, is an important source of, of trade. So, you know, there are things going for the UK and a reason for the UK to be a high priority in the terms of American foreign policy. But I don't think the shared history and all of that really plays anymore. And I think one of the things that's interesting about British politics at the moment is because it's all been very inward looking over the last few years, you probably haven't had the chance for members of parliament to get over here as much as they might otherwise have done and foster relationships further down the ladder. You know, parliamentary congressional relationships can be quite important at times. And we talked before about how Congress plays a role, for example, in ratifying any trade bill. Well, sometimes, you know, if you get the right delegation of MPs going over to Washington and speaking to their mates here on Capitol Hill, that can really make all the difference. But I don't get the feeling there's been a lot of that happening over the last few years. So really, you know, a lot of these people will be starting from scratch and trying to create these bonds um, rather than being able to suddenly uh, rely on them. Well, that's everything. Thanks for joining me, Kieran, Rachel and Alex. And thanks everyone for listening. And I hope American politics makes a little more sense. The UK's attempt to woo Donald Trump may well backfire if Joe Biden wins the election in two weeks. Though Biden is nothing if not a pragmatist and is still likely to work with the UK regardless of what's gone before. But the hard truth is even a Trump win doesn't change the dynamics. The UK has struck out on its own and can't rely on the US to do it any favours. Please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out our other podcasts. That includes Commons People, which Rachel appears on, and that's our weekly look at UK politics. And they're all available in the usual places. Thanks very much for listening and speak to you again.